Well, one thing that I experienced as a student and that is still here is that um, is the importance of relationships to education and, and to identity really formation and understanding one's self and one's work in the world. We are small, but the work that our alumni are doing in the world is, um, is very important and meaningful. And I wanted to be a part of that. Thank you and good morning. Welcome to the special inauguration week edition of Convocation. I'm Duane Stolzfus, uh, Professor of Communication and Director of the Corps here at Goshen College. Apart from the Convocation this morning, we're looking forward to a couple of other signature events that include tonight, Stoltzfest in the Recreation Fitness Center that's beginning at 7 o'clock for students, employees, retirees, and their families. And of course, the inauguration ceremony tomorrow morning at 10 in Souter Concert Hall at the Music Center. I also want to mention that immediately following convocation this morning, there are two tables set up, one out that direction and one out this direction with cards. If you would like to uh, write a personal message, well wishes to, uh, to the president, you can do so immediately following, and also there'll be opportunities tonight as well. Now students, you know the technology protocol here, but bear with me as I remind our guests this morning that we ask that all devices be put away so that we can be fully present in this community space uh, respectfully listening to each of the speakers and avoiding any possible distractions for our neighbors. Speaking of guests, I'd like to mention that this morning we are joined by members of the Goshen College Board of Directors. They're here for a couple of days of meetings and of course taking in inauguration events. Uh, board members, if you would, please stand and let's welcome them with applause. And now I'd like to introduce the person who envisioned this program this morning, Dr. Rebecca Stolzfus, who became the 18th president of Goshen College on November 1st. And it was only two weeks later, we had a brief planning meeting for this convocation. And within a day, she had prepared a framing statement, and we had a clear and compelling draft in hand for a conversation in which she would invite four members of the college community to come and talk with us, share their stories about identity formation and transformation. And she's soon gonna introduce those panelists. But first, a few more words about her. Prior to assuming the presidency here, Becky was vice provost for undergraduate education and professor of human nutrition at Cornell University where years earlier she earned master's and doctoral degrees in human nutrition. Her undergraduate degree in chemistry she earned right here at Goshen College in 1983. Thanks to the folks in communication and marketing, we're learning more about her this week and, and take a look at some of those stories online if you haven't seen them yet. That she is conversational in six languages, including Spanish, French, and Swahili that she's visited more than 40 countries, from Argentina to Zimbabwe, and that she and her husband, Kevin Miller, 
enjoy reading children's literature to each other aloud at the close of the day. As a professor, Becky collaborated to create Cornell's Global Health Program, which offers learning opportunities for undergraduate students working on health issues with partners in Tanzania and Zambia and Dominican Republic and India. Her research focused on causes and consequences of malnutrition in women and children, leading to more than 150 peer-reviewed scientific publications. And she's now brought her formidable intellect, her very collegial style, and her boundless energy here to Goshen College, where she's present with us this morning to help us think more deeply about identity. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Rebecca Stolzfus. Thank you so much. I'm so glad that you're here, glad to be here myself. Um, and welcome this morning to hear some stories about identity formation and identity transformation. To be born into this world as a human being is a sacred thing. To be a child of God, a unique being of intrinsic preciousness and worth. To have an identity. The psalmist writes that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, knitted together in our mother's womb. Some aspects of our identities are given to us by genetics, politics, or life circumstance. And other aspects we create or discover or claim. Perhaps the measure of our liberation is our freedom to become who we really are. The freedom to shed our constraints or to claim new aspects of ourselves and to grow as we need to grow. A liberal arts education is meant to launch us into that freedom, to become who we really are in the context of culture and community and the larger society. The psychologist Carl Jung said, the privilege of a lifetime is to become who you really are. And in my experience, that privilege of becoming oneself is never complete as long as we are truly alive, awake, and learning. The American author and poet Mae Sarton writes this about this aspect of becoming. Now I become myself. It's taken time, many years and places. I've been dissolved and shaken worn other people's faces. Now to stand still, to be here, to feel my own weight and destiny. In celebration of Goshen College as a place of growing and becoming who we really are, this morning we have the privilege of hearing from four members of our community their stories of becoming who they are and I'll introduce each of them briefly in the order in which they will speak. So John D. Roth, over there at the end, um, joined the Goshen College faculty in 1985 as a professor of history. 
Since then, he's enjoyed a variety of jobs um, at Goshen College, additional tasks, serving as editor of the Mennonite Quarterly Review, director of the Mennonite Historical Library, and director of the Institute for the Study of Global Anabaptism. John loves to read and write, is an avid gardener, and enjoys spending as much time as possible with his three grandchildren, Anna, Ruth, and James. Karina Lopez, formerly known at Goshen College as Karina Flores, is a 2013 graduate from Goshen College who now works as a multimedia journalist at WNDU 16 in South Bend. She is the morning news reporter who goes live every morning of the week reporting on the day's events. Aside from her job, Karina also serves as the worship pastor at a local Spanish-speaking church, Zion CC, is that community church? <laughs> in Spanish. She is married to Luis Lopez, and they have two German shepherds, Tiki and Luna. Welcome, Karina. <laughs> Beverly Lapp, a 1991 Goshen College graduate, completed her advanced degrees at Westminster College Choir and Columbia University. She is now in her 23rd year on our music faculty, has served as chair of the music department, director of the Goshen Core Curriculum, and leader of four study service terms, most recently in China, just this past fall of 2017. Welcome, Bev. And Dominique Burgunder Johnson works here at Goshen College as our director of marketing. Dominique grew up in a small town in southeastern Germany. She's a 2006 graduate of Goshen College, where she double majored in peace, justice, and conflict studies, and in history. And she's a 2016 graduate of Eastern Mennonite University in their Master of Business Administration program. She spent the first decade of after college working in the field of nonprofit advocacy, communications, and marketing. And she's been the director of marketing here at GC since 2015. Welcome, Dominique. So each of these, each of our panelists has, is going to start with a story about their own identity formation and transformation, and then I'm going to ask a couple of questions of them. So John, I think you're going to lead us off. Good morning. Uh, there are many moments or seasons in my life when I can look back and see them as transformative, but I want to tell a story of when I was uh, 18. I grew up in a, at the edge of an intensely Mennonite community in Ohio. Uh, I was the only Mennonite student in elementary school, but I was deeply aware of a particular kind of identity and culture. Uh, my family didn't have TV, we didn't go to movies, uh, we sometimes said, you know, Mennonites don't dance, drink, smoke, chew, or date those that do. And uh, it was a loving family. There was nothing abusive about it. But I also felt at a certain point like I couldn't breathe. I, um, I went to a Mennonite high school in 1977. I came to Goshen College, which was a Mennonite college. At that point, about 70% of the students, I think, were Mennonite. And at the end of my first year at Goshen, I knew that something had to change. Uh, and thanks to a good friend who remains uh, a good friend today, uh, arrangements were made 
And uh, against the expressed wishes of my parents, in the summer of 1977, I dropped out of college, packed everything I could into a backpack, and headed for Europe. And I landed um, in a tiny village in Lower Austria, right on the border of what was then Czechoslovakia, living with a lovely family, uh, kind of a, a simple, a peasant family in, in many ways. They spoke no English, a very thick dialect of German. I had only a few words of German, but they were looking for cheap labor and I was looking to be anywhere but Indiana or Ohio. Um, <laughs> And it was, it was hard. It was hard work, physical work. It was uh, the vine, uh, gr grape harvest and the wheat harvest. It was isolating. Uh, it was lonely, but it was somehow where I wanted to be. And in November, after the harvest was over, I knew I wanted to see Europe. And so I got out a map, and it didn't take me very long to know that I wanted to go to Greece. Um, it, it just seemed like it was the perfect combination of warm weather, I envisioned uh, white beaches and the blue Mediterranean and uh, relaxing, but it was also a kind of a highbrow choice because Greece, you know, the fountainhead of Western civilization. I thought I would go there and uh, commune with Plato and Aristotle and think deep thoughts and <laughs> discover the meaning of life somehow. And so I got a Eurail pass and headed to Greece. I arrived on, in Athens on a Saturday night, checked into a youth hostel. On Sunday morning, I sort of quite consciously was not going to church, and instead I strolled around the city. I saw the sights of the Acropolis, took in the Mediterranean air, and it was a wonderful day. Late afternoon, I was walking back to the youth hostel, when a young man approached me uh, in a park and he asked if I would exchange money with him. And I said, no, I wasn't interested, but he persisted and he was persuasive. And in the end, he promised, he offered to give me double the going rate, which sounded pretty good because I didn't have much money to begin with. And so we agreed on the terms. I gave him my shillings. He gave me 16,000 Greek drachmas, which I put in my neck purse for safety. Went back to the youth hostel, elated, thrilled at you know my first day out. I've already doubled my, my resources. Took the money out and, of course, discovered in one crashing moment that it was not 16,000 Greek drachma, but it was one 500 drachma note wrapped around a wad of Italian newspaper and that I had been swindled, and in that just crashing moment, I just felt sick and unsure of what to do. I still had my Eurail pass, and I gathered my things together. I went to the train station, and I got on the first train I could find that was heading north, and all night long I sat by myself in this compartment thinking, what a fool I am. I mean, it was self-loathing. Uh, what a country bumpkin. Who did I think I was? Why did I, I mean, what was, where, who am I? Where am I heading? What was this about? And it was a slow train. All the next day, I sat in that train 
another night. By now I was hungry and as the, I resolved that I was going to get out. As the sun was coming up, I was going to get out wherever the next station was. And this train came to a stop. I got out and I noticed somewhat to my disgust that uh, we were in Zurich, Switzerland, which is the birthplace of the Mennonite movement. Which, um, so I wandered around. I came to a large church. I heard organ music playing. And I went in and sat down trying, listening to this organ music. And at one point, I heard the voices, loud voices, of American tourists. And I remember thinking somewhat disgustedly, oh, these Americans, you know, uncouth people who make noise wherever they go. And I got up to leave, and I happened to be wearing a Goshen College sweatshirt, and somebody from this group called out, are you from Goshen? And it turned out that this group was a group of Mennonites from Ohio and Pennsylvania <laughs> who were... <laughs> on a kind of pilgrimage to the holy land of Zurich. And they called me over and, of course, wanted to hear my story. And I told them my humiliation. And in an instant, they gathered around me and they took up a collection and they prayed for me and they sent me on my way. And in some small way, I left a changed person. And in some small way, I think ever since then, I have been trying to sort out what it means to be a person who, in trying to leave my community, was found and embraced by a community in an hour of profound need. And I've been grateful to that community uh, ever since. Um, so I want to start with just a, a bit of a, a verse that is very near and dear to my heart. And it's 2 Corinthians 3.17 that says, Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And I want to share about how that phrase has come alive in my life. Um, I grew up in church, not in the Mennonite church, but I grew up actually with sort of like a Pentecostal background. And so growing up, I was just taught, you know, you go to church every Sunday, you sit in on Bible school, and, um, and you just, you, you learn biblical teachings, and that's what I grew up with. But it was something that never impacted me personally. And um, I always considered myself someone who was from a Christian family, but just that it wasn't part of my identity at that time. And it wasn't until I got to high school, um, and I was about 15 years old, that I started to really change my character. Like, I had always been sort of a kind of soft-hearted person. I like a really conscientious person of right and wrong. I always had like such a strong conscience of, I think this is right and this is wrong, and I, that doesn't mean I did what was right. I always, oftentimes I would do what was wrong, and, and that would like tear me apart. Um, but when I got to high school, I started to really let go of that and stop caring about that. And I started to try to become somebody that I wasn't, all for the sake of wanting to be like everybody else. I, you know, it's something that now looking back seems kind of silly, but at the time that was like everything. Like I needed to fit in, I needed to be cool and popular, and I got, I felt like I just didn't fit in with people and I didn't understand why. 
And so I kind of got to this point where I started letting go of myself to try to be something that I wasn't. And it started to unravel my life. And I started to become this person who was really selfish and uh, constantly lying. And I was causing problems in my own family who's always been so close and, and trusting of each other. And I started causing problems with my parents who've always been like such great parents, a great example to me. and it got to the point where I realized I'm making myself miserable. I didn't like who I was becoming. I was trying to please other people by being somebody that I wasn't. And in the meantime, I was becoming unhappy with myself. And when I got to that point, I ended up at a youth camp uh, that I went, through, went to through my church. And at that camp, ironically, the person who was speaking was talking about how we often neglect the calling for our lives because of menial things, things that don't matter. And I, he, the, the speaker that night said, if you really want to become you know, the person you're intended to be, if you want to discover your purpose, you need to let go of the things that are holding you back. Like, just be willing to let them go. And that night was the first time that I actually listened to what was being said to me. And was the first time that I can say I encountered the Holy Spirit in a way that I'd always read about but never understood. And I allowed that to sink in and I allowed it to change my life. And that's when I can say the process of transformation for the rest of my life began. And it wasn't a quick transformation. In fact, it's something that continues. And I think that's part of you know who you are is that you're being shaped every single day you know but what's that moment when you decide you know what i have a purpose i have a calling there's something there's a reason why i'm here and since that day i began to change and in my perspective allow myself to become who the lord was calling me to be and when i allowed that when i allowed myself to you know delve into that freedom I became somebody that, you know, I never thought I could be. I started changing, and, and granted, I didn't fit in anymore. In fact, if anything, I became more weird. <laughs> and uh, people at school would give me such a hard time because of my, you know, just things that I did. They were like, why are you, why are you doing that? Like, that's not normal. And I was like, I don't care. Like, I would, I skipped prom to go to a church event, and people were like, that's weird, but that's just, that's where my heart was. That's what I wanted to do. So, you know, from that point on, I, I learned that it's not important what other people think. It's about what your purpose is and you stepping out and being bold enough to want to walk in that purpose. And today, that's always my biggest thing is that I think every day you shouldn't walk towards a distant purpose for your life, but rather, what's my purpose for today? Because if you're a procrastinator like me, you can end up saying, oh, well, I'll put off my purpose or my goals for tomorrow. But it's like, no, what is it for today? What am I called to do today? Who am I called to impact today? And once you start holding yourself to that kind of accountability, you really start pushing yourself in a way you hadn't before. And I think that's been a big part of, um, you know, changing who I am as a person, and it's led me to where I am today and where I really hope to keep going in the future, and I hope to encourage other people to want to do the same. So I've always liked the phrase, what is it you will do with your one wild and precious life, from Mary Oliver's poem, Summer Day. 
this question also has a lot of pressure within it. Of course, we don't do just one thing with our lives, and yet there is something wonderful, a type of freedom in identifying a passion or a cluster of passions to organize one's life around. Last semester on study service term in China, we read a book about Chinese philosophy, The Path. The ancient ideas in this book release the pressure of finding the perfect path or our one true self. If we too narrowly define or seek to find our path or true self, we may not be open to growth and change. And yet, I do have a genuine self to call forth. So do each of us in this room. Recently, a friend told me, Bev, be yourself in advance of a situation I was anxious about. My first reaction was, really? I should be myself? And we laughed that I would think for a minute that anything else could work. There is freedom in trusting our genuine selves. There's also freedom in knowing we are not fixed, knowing that we are becoming new with each experience on our journey. When I was nine years old, my family moved to Jamaica to volunteer with Mennonite Central Committee. It was there in Jamaica that I developed my gifts at the piano in a way that had staying power. I doubt I would be a musician today without those years. In Jamaica in the early 80s, the school day was over by about 1 p.m., and that left me a lot of time to practice piano. A good, demanding teacher in combination with these hours available to me helped my skills flourish during this time. But I think there was something else in the mix. Being in an unfamiliar and culturally rich environment, seeing both overwhelming poverty and breathtaking beauty around me gave me a lot to think about. The piano kept inviting me to express what was being worked out internally. When I returned to Pennsylvania at the age of 12, my identity was linked with my piano skills and they became an anchor for me during adolescence. Later, it was at Goshen College that I was able to go deep with music as my primary discipline while also branching out to other areas of study. Gen Ed, of course, SST, and as many elective English classes I could fit in. Here at Goshen, I struggled with big questions about faith and life, and I took a lot of my processing with me to the practice room. So as a child, I had no control in my parents' decision to take us to another country for a few years. But what started there gave me the joy of being pushed hard to develop a gift, and other experiences gave me the freedom to have more than one path. And more and more, I think it's the non-music experiences I've had that make me a better, more expressive musician. I, had, I have more to say at the piano because of these encounters. And that's the paradox, I think, of a liberal arts education, that the primary work we organize our lives around is strengthened when it's in dialogue with other disciplines. Former Goshen College president J. Lawrence Burkholder said, the purpose of a liberal arts education is to have something to think about the rest of one's days. Each of our lives is a wild and precious gift. We can't control all that happens in it, but we can pay attention to what makes our hearts sing. We can open ourselves up to experiences that will make the melody we're singing that much more interesting, that will give us more to say, and that will give us many things to think about the rest of our days.
So um, I transferred to Goshen as a sophomore in 2003, um, and the very first class that I took here was a history class called Immigration and Ethnic History. Um, and one of the, or the first assignment that we had in that class was to write uh, our family's story of immigration. And as a professor was explaining this assignment, uh, I was pretty nervous and stressed out about it because I thought, my family doesn't have an immigration story. How am I supposed to do this assignment? I've always been someone who's cared a lot about doing well in school and meeting the, you know, the exact requirements of an assignment. And I thought, like, there's no way for me to do this. Um, yeah, my, so my mom is, is from Germany. Um, she's German, she's still there, that's where I grew up. And as far as we know, her entire family lineage has always been in Germany, so there's very clearly no immigration story there. Um, and my father is African-American, and like many African-Americans, it's not exactly a story of immigration, it's a story of forcible removement, <laughs> you know, from somewhere on the African continent and enslavement and being forced to be here. And, so yeah, it didn't sort of fit into this neat frame of immigration. Um, but I thought, you know, what choice do I have? This is intended to be a personal story, so I just kind of have to do the best that I can. Um, so I decided to focus on my dad's lineage story, because it was at least, you know, an American story, if not exactly an immigration story. Um, yeah, and, and throughout kind of, you know, developing that, that paper, uh, it was pretty stressful. I, I felt, I believe, I. I was definitely the only African-American in the class. I think the rest of the class might have been all white and maybe all North American, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, a lot of Mennonite students, and I felt very aware of, you know, everyone else was going to be handing in these papers that had tons of detail about what village their family came from and the exact year that their families, you know, came to the U.S. and, um, you know, where they settled when they got here and how they got here and that sort of thing. And as I was writing my paper, I couldn't offer any of those details. We don't, you know, have any sort of sense of a country of origin, you know, for my dad's family, let alone even a general region. Um, certainly don't have, you know, a strong sense of time frame. I mean, certainly not even decades, maybe even not even centuries that we could really pin down. And so my paper had to rely a lot on sort of these secondary sources to kind of write this very generalized kind of uh, family history that wasn't really specific to kind of my family at all. So yeah, you know, the day came to turn in the assignment and I felt like I was turning in this really kind of inadequate, lacking um, paper. And I really had no idea what to expect as far as what kind of grade it was going to be getting back. Um, I figured I'd probably at least, you know, get a C just for kind of effort and general good writing quality. But yeah, <laughs> beyond that, you know, really had no idea what to expect. Um, and then, you know, about a week later, we were getting our assignments back. Um, and once my paper was handed back to me, I was kind of slowly flipping through, you know, the pages, seeing what comments and marks were on the paper. Um, yeah, and on the, you know, very last page was a big red A at the bottom with a circle around it. Um, which, you know, in hindsight, or many, you know, to you all listening right now might sound like it's not that big of a deal, but it was really this kind of defining moment for me um, that felt like, okay, so even though kind of my story and my family's story doesn't fit, you know, perfectly into this kind of frame, um, it was still being validated and affirmed as you know, a story that matters or that counts. Um, and that felt like a significant contrast to kind of the elementary or high school academic experience where you're constantly kind of learning about other people's stories or learning about facts that were discovered by other people. Um, whereas this was an opportunity to sort of talk about my facts and my truth and to have that valued 
Um, yeah, and I think it really also then gave me kind of the confidence in subsequent classes and kind of throughout the rest of my college experience to feel like um, I could bring myself into what I was learning, that I could bring it into my research and into my questions, that when I was being presented with, you know, frames that didn't exactly align with kind of, you know, my perspective or my experience, that I could question those frames. Um, yeah, so it was um, certainly, you know, not sort of this one-and-done moment of like, okay, now I know I can always, you know, show up as myself and be confident in that, but it was really kind of this beginning of feeling like, okay, well, I can at least start to show, show more of myself, even if not my full self, um, and to, yeah, continue to feel encouraged in that, so. Thank you so much for sharing those stories with us. Um, so I'm going to ask a couple of questions, and, and, and you all can respond. So Karina and Dominique particularly talked about some of the, well, you all talked about feelings in the moment of your, of your story, and, and the kind of moment that opened the door to growth. I wonder if you could say more about um, the kind of disorientation that happens in, in those moments of transformation. And for you, what helped you through that disorientation? Was it somebody else, or was it something within yourself? Well, for me, it was, um, like I said, I, I grew up under like a certain uh, teaching, I guess you could say, and when I got here to Goshen College, it was like a big culture shock for me because I, you know, I had never been exposed to the Mennonite uh, tradition, even though I grew up here in Goshen. And so coming to Goshen College was like, uh, it was a great challenge for me. It was uh, something different. Um, and while I believe that standing firm in your faith is, or in your beliefs is part of faith, it's also important to um, not become a slave to like single-mindedness. And that's something that I, I learned here and that like helped shape me. And actually by the end, um, I had the opportunity to share at, like give my senior faith statement here at the end of the year. And I talked about um, something that kind of, I don't know, I just, I learned. And it was referring to the story of the woman who was brought before Jesus. Um, that she was caught breaking their law, and they said, by law, this woman should die. We should stone her. And Jesus said, well, let he who is without sin be the first to throw the stone. And it just made me think of how nowadays so many people clash with different opinions, and they're unwilling to hear the other side. And it's like, I, I talked about how we're all walking around with stones in our hands, because as soon as we come up to someone who doesn't uh, meet the standards of our own laws, we're ready to just judge them for that, you know? And so I talked about how we all have our own faults and, and no one is perfect or, you know, knows everything. And so it's important to be open-minded about that. And that sort of is what helped me here, this exposure to so many different cultures and a different denomination and other faith backgrounds mm -hmm. that um, really helped shape my tr own transformation process as well. So. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Does anyone else want to speak to that? What helped you through or helps you through disorientation? Yeah, I think um, there were a lot of things throughout college that were very disorienting. Um, yeah, and I think for me, a lot of it centered around sort of, of coming to terms with racial identity. Um, 
and you know, linked to the story that I just told, I think sort of leading up until college, um, no one was sort of asking me, you know, what my racial identity meant to me or, um, yeah, you know, and a, a lot of our classrooms were sort of taught one narrative about history or one narrative about the world um, and no one was kind of asking, okay, what are some of the other narratives in here? What are some of the other stories? And, and college was really kind of the first time where those questions were coming up, both being asked of me and where I was sort of being shaped to ask those questions of myself. Um, yeah, and it was disorienting because it was kind of like, well, I'm not used to talking about myself or to thinking about me in this larger context. Um, yeah, and so I think one thing that was very orienting in that disorientation was definitely, yeah, other people, whether it was um, professors or, you know, other employees that, you know, weren't necessarily faculty um, or even my peers and friends here who, um, yeah, were also offering affirmation and encouragement and, yeah, you know, continue to pursue these questions or continue to question these things or don't be afraid to sort of disagree with some of these things. And so, yeah, it was, you know, very much kind of a, a collaborative learning process. Um, yeah, so other people are a big part of that orientation. Thanks. Another question. So you've told us stories about transformation, um, but I wonder as you look back now, um, how do you, or do you, or how do you continue to include the roots of your identity um, in who you are today, in your present expressions or, or sense of your identity? Have you left things entirely behind and just shed them? Or would you say that you've incorporated in some ways your, your root identity into your, your present expressions? I think for me it was important at a certain moment in life to recognize a culture that had shaped me and to claim it and to be okay with the particularity of that culture. Um, but at the same time, I recognize now in the story how much privilege was embedded in that moment that enabled this group to see me as one of them. and. I would say the journey for me since then has been one of asking, so if I'm going to claim this particular tradition, how does it stay alive? How is it renewed? And the only way traditions are renewed are by reaching out and bringing new voices, new insights into them. And so it's been my ongoing journey as a Mennonite. I can I claim that identity, but that that journey has been one of asking whose voices do we need that aren't part of the story I heard growing up. I celebrated the fact that a week ago Mennonite Church USA announced that for the first time we have an executive secretary who's an African American. That changes the way children growing up will look at the Mennonite Church in traditional communities. I've been deeply committed to ecumenical relationships, and one of the joys of my work has been to work alongside Lutherans and Reformed at rethinking our history in ways that can lead to forgiveness for historical wrongs. And I've been personally transformed by the global church, by an awareness that today Mennonite Church USA, Mennonite Church Canada are 6% of our global body. 
and that most Mennonites today live in cultures and speak languages that don't look anything like the community that I grew up in, and that that's a gift that points to a renewed tradition for the future. Thanks. Yeah, in this question of including the roots and leaving things behind makes me think about um, an aspect of U.S. Mennonite church history um, in, in some areas. So there was a time in the middle of the 20th century that in some Mennonite traditions, pianos were not allowed in church, nor were other instruments. They were considered too ornamental or too soloistic for the call to living in simplicity and, and in an alternative way. So this, is, this ban on instruments in, in certain Mennonite communities is what helped the a cappella four-part singing tradition develop. Other things as, did as well. There was a singing school tradition, but the, the singing had to become stronger because there were not instruments to, um, to support or, or some would say to, to cover. I was seven or eight when a piano was moved into my home church, Plains Mennonite in southeastern Pennsylvania. Um, and that was probably pretty important for me that that rule changed. But it's so interesting, I think. It stood out for me of a story how a rule that I'm glad um, ended did lead to something unique, something I treasure, that sound of, of voices and harmony um, without being covered by an instrument. I haven't reconciled everything about this story because there was pain in, in this ban. If, if your father was a pastor or, or Mennonite bishop in certain communities, you couldn't even have a piano in your home. Uh, so, so there's a lot to reconcile. And I have definitely left behind the idea that pianos or guitars or drums don't belong in church. But I do wonder, what traditions are we maintaining today in our various cultures? Um, and what is it that we, we choose not to do that sets us apart and that helps something really, um, something we treasure emerge? Thank you all so much. Um, I think I'm going to close here. Um, it's Black History Month. So one thing that I am aware of through all these events is making sure that American black authors are heard in these spaces this month. And so I want to end with some thoughts from James Baldwin. Um, his book, The Fire Next Time, is one of my recommended reads in the library. If you haven't read it, um, I recommend it. And that book challenged me to think about how um, what he refers to in his book as the race problem. He actually refers to it in his language of 1962 as the Negro problem. Is actually a problem created by um, white people who have broken identities and have inner healing to do. And there is a lot that challenged me as I read his, his words. One of the things that I don't have the quotation before me, but I think I will get it very nearly right. He writes that um, near the end of his book, he has a very powerful paragraph about the role of love in taking off our masks. 
and that what we need to do is have the courage and ability to take off our masks. And he says that love is the only thing that can take off our masks, the masks that we can no longer live within and we don't know how to live without. And then he speaks about the kind of courageous word, and here I no longer have his words memorized. I won't quote them, but encourage you to read him. Um, the kind of love that he's speaking about, which is not, in a paraphrase of his words, the wishy-washy American kind of love, but a courageous, honest love that we each need to take off our masks and become who we are. And as a leader and a colleague here at Goshen College, I hope that this college continues to be the kind of place that manifests that courageous love that allows us each to become who we are. And I want to thank our panelists one more time today for their honesty and their creativity this morning. Thank you and have a wonderful day. <laughs>